Well, if you're looking at all the different decorations up here for Vacation Bible School and this island theme, you may see something that doesn't belong. Uh, one of these things is not like the others. It's a little, a little game. Do you see anything up here that doesn't belong? Well, if you don't see right in front of me, some of you probably can't even see, is a model of a tabernacle. It has nothing to do with the theme of Vacation Bible School. But it does have to do with what we've been studying in Exodus. And so I appreciate uh, Brandon Steenson, whose grandfather made this, how many years ago do you think, Brandon? Decades ago, 50 plus years ago, uh, he made this model. And so, uh, so you're welcome afterwards. We'll have it uh, for the next three weeks because we'll be looking at uh, what, uh, what Exodus tells us about the tabernacle. Um, but you're, you're welcome to pick up the pieces and look at them. And uh, it kind of gives you just a little bit more of an idea of how the tabernacle looked. Just kind of give you an idea that the, the entire structure, the campus of the tabernacle, was about a quarter of a football field. So that was... Uh, so that maybe gives you a little bit of an idea of uh, of the the structures there. Uh, if you, if you have young kids, if you would just bring your parents with you uh, to look at it. But uh, but but uh, really, it's it's a neat it's a neat model, and I think will help you even a picture get a little bit better idea of the things uh, that we're talking about uh, this morning and uh, and in the future. Um, also uh, had an announcement, another announcement of a birth. We uh, Jeff mentioned. Uh, the birth of Chris and Cindy's daughter. Well, early this morning, we also have another birth uh, in our church family, Nick and Laura Treader. Uh, welcome Caleb Benjamin, born uh, born and yesterday evening, I guess. It was yesterday evening at 545, 8 pounds, 4 ounces. And so we are uh, rejoicing uh, with the Treader family and the addition to uh, to them and to our addition to our church family. So we have Two new uh, members of our church here that are uh, that, that will be be a part of our church family, and that is a, a great blessing. Also, by way of update, uh, you have probably noticed that our north entrance of our church had a lot of uh, has had a lot of changes. Used to have this fence, and around that fence were these buried uh, silos that had water, and that was way before there was city water out here. In case the church was on fire, the fire department would use that. Don't need that anymore. We finally were able to get those removed, and so that fence is all down. It's been nicely curbed, and you'll see a pile of dirt there. The goal is to 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 have topsoil and grass there, and that uh, will look better. And so that's something that uh, we've been wanting to do for many years, and we're finally able to do that. Uh, and then to our south, there are two acres that the, the church was able to purchase a little while back, and, uh, and not knowing exactly what all will be used uh, on that property. Uh, but this week, there's going to be some dirt being moved around. The, uh, the school, Meadows Academy, has been raising funds for an athletic field and eventually a playground as well. And so uh, they're going to be uh, kind of grading it, putting topsoil and then sod grass. The goal is that it will be ready for September. I think there's like 220 students uh, at Meadows Baptist Academy this fall. And so the goal is to have that ready. That allows a lot more room for them to to play with physical education and recess and those things. And so we're excited about that. That all kind of happened very, 
fairly quickly so that the church isn't really paying for any of that. We'll get to use it as well. But we share as partner ministries this property and building. And uh, what a blessing it will to be able to use that. Uh, Lord willing, the church has set aside money to hook up to a sewer. We still are on a septic tank. And so that will be back behind, but we still are working with an engineer before we get uh, a permit to be able to do that. So maybe this this uh, summer or fall, that may go in as well. But we'd invite you right after the service, unless it rains, but right now it's sunny, uh, to, um, to, the, to the south of the building. And uh, we'll just do a, a brief little uh, brown breaking ceremony and prayer. And if so, if you'd like to go out, kind of see that property and, and what's going to be happening uh, there. Again, we, we don't know a lot of the, the, the long future, but at least that immediate athletic field. You're welcome to come out immediately following the service and, uh, and we'll uh, have that prayer together. Let's uh, pray now and we'll jump into God's word as we already prayed for the Lord to speak to us. Let's ask His help. Father, we, we do want You to speak to us. We've come to hear from You, and that's why with open Bible, we look to Your Word and we want to hear from You. And so we pray that Your Holy Spirit would be at work in every heart as we look to Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, it will be seven years ago that our family moved back to Edmonton. And uh, shortly after that fall, the Lord provided us with a home. When the weather started warming up by the next spring and early summer, uh, my wife and I started talking about the possibility of maybe getting a, a swing set in our backyard. Um, the boys were al already too old, but we were thinking, well, our youngest would really like a swing set at our previous house. We had one of these. As we discussed it more, we weren't too far from a park, and we thought, well, will they outgrow it? Uh, in a, just a few years. So instead, we decided to get a trampoline. And so uh, Canadian Tire in the month of June was having a Father's Day sale that included a trampoline. I have no idea why trampoline is for a Father's Day sale. Isn't that what you see in backyards? A bunch of fathers just jumping around on trampolines. I don't know why it was a Father's Day sale. But anyways, we, we took advantage of that sale and... Uh, purchased this trampoline. And I, I still remember that evening, I brought home this big box and we took it out to the backyard and we opened it up and we laid everything out, all of the different pieces. And then I took out the instruction manual. I've learned the hard way uh, to not to ignore that. So I, so we followed it every step of the way. And after a couple hours, we had this trampoline assembled. And it, it seemed to be a, a good purchase because our kids continued to use uh, the trampoline with only a couple minor repairs, only a few minor injuries over the years. And so, uh, and so the trampoline has uh, been something that has gotten a lot of use and, uh, and we're thankful for. But one thing that I haven't done is gotten out that assembly manual just to read for fun. You know, it served a purpose. It was very important at the time of assembly, but not really afterwards, and certainly not for pleasure reading. And when we think about that, I think that's how we sometimes think about Exodus chapter 25 all the way to 40, because it really is all about the assembly of a big tent. And so we 
we see it there and there's all these types of material and dimensions and pieces of furniture and even instructions for the priests and their duties in that tent and even what clothes they wore. And we understand that these instructions are from God and they were very important for the people of Israel 3,500 years ago. But why should we be interested in all of these directions? What importance do they have for us today? So when we're reading through the Bible, can we just skip this part and move on to something more exciting, more relevant? Well, I'm not going to argue that there aren't parts of the Bible that are more exciting, like the first half of Exodus and all of the action and drama. Uh, That certainly is true. And uh, it's not as exciting reading about these details. But we are going to take some time to look at these instructions concerning the assembly of the tabernacle because it does have relevance for us today. The influential theologian Augustine once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. But in the New Testament... The old is revealed. And if you'll notice, in your Bible, you have both. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And so this is extremely important. Without an understanding of what the Bible says here in Exodus concerning the tabernacle, we will miss the fulfillment of these picture prophecies. Because many of the New Testament writers, especially the writer of Hebrews, refers to this ancient tent and how it points ahead to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's begin by reading the first few verses of Exodus chapter 25. You may recall that the setting, Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai, the 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 nation of Israel has been inaugurated as a nation as they are gathered at the base of the mountain. Moses is now at the top and he's meeting with the Lord. Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So what are all these donated materials for? Verse 8. And let them make me, God says... Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings. Just so you shall make it. So God instructs this newly inaugurated nation to make him a tent. And the next several chapters are the details of the pattern that the Lord wants them to follow in the tent and its furnishings. 
Now, in these chapters, we find three names for this tent. And each of these names tells us something very significant about it. The first name is in verse 8. God says, make me a sanctuary. And the Hebrew word for sanctuary is part of a word group with the verb sanctify and the adjective holy. A sanctuary is a holy place, a place set apart as sacred. The entire structure proclaimed the holiness of God. So that's the first message of the tabernacle. In it, God proclaims His holiness. Another name for the tabernacle is Tent of Meeting. That's first mentioned in chapter 27, verse 21. This was the place where God met with His people. But there were conditions before sinful people could meet with the holy God. And so chapters 27, 28, and 29 are about the altar for sacrifices and the priesthood who operated as mediators between God and the people. So the message of the tent of meeting is that God provides a mediator. And a third name for this big tent is in verse 9 of chapter 25, that word tabernacle. And it is a noun derived from a verb that occurs in verse 8, translated dwell. The Lord says, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So it was called a tabernacle, the place where God dwells among his people. The message of the tabernacle then is that God promises his presence. So those are the three prominent messages taught in Exodus regarding the tabernacle. And we will focus on each one of these the next few Sundays. So God proclaims His holiness in the sanctuary. God provides a mediator in the tent of meeting. And God promises His presence in the tabernacle. So this morning, we will focus on how this tent proclaims God's holiness. Although the entire structure with the large courtyard makes up the tabernacle, the sanctuary was the enclosed building. And that building contained two rooms. The larger room called the holy place, and a smaller room called the most holy place, literally the holy of holies. So with these names, sanctuary, holy place, and most holy place, it's hard to miss the theme being communicated. The Lord is holy. Now let's continue to read the instructions God gives to Moses. Verse 10. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, as the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be 
in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. Now that word ark is not the same Hebrew word for Noah's ark. It's a different word. And the idea here is a box or a, a, a larger box, a chest. And a cubit is the distance between the elbow and the, and the top of your tallest finger. And so on average, it's about 48 centimeters. So this box was about a little over a meter long and a little over a half meter wide and deep. And I want you to think about the Lord's instructions here. He doesn't begin with the entrance of the tent. If you were going to describe your home, would you describe it that way? I would. Well, first you, you go to the door, and, and as you go inside, to the left is a living room, to the right is a bathroom, and go down a hall, and then here's the kitchen. And you would kind of maybe, from the beginning, entrance and show them around uh, the different rooms. Well, God doesn't start with the entrance. He doesn't even start by talking about the rooms. He begins by talking about this box. So this shows us that it is extremely important. It was made of dense wood overlaid with gold. And there were two rings on either side for poles to go through for carrying because no one was allowed to touch the ark. Verse 16 mentions one item to be placed inside the ark, the testimony which are the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Later, Aaron's rod and a sample of manna would be placed inside. But the prominent item was the law. Verse 22 is the first of many times that it is called the Ark of the Testimony, referring to God's law. Now let's keep reading to understand its significance. Verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings." They shall face one another. The face of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel." So here we learn about the lid for the ark. Rather than being wood overlaid with gold, the lid is made of pure gold. And on top were two cherubim of pure gold. And they had wings that stretched out over the top of this lid toward the center of the box. Look at verse 22 again to see the significance. The Lord tells Moses, There I will meet with you, and I will speak to you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the Ark of the Testimony. So here's the picture. God is omnipresent, right? He's not contained in this little space. We understand that. 
But this is where the Lord would condescend to be present and to dwell in a special way with his people. And specifically, this is where God meets with Moses and communicates to the leader of his people. Numbers chapter 7 and verse 49 records such an occasion. When Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. So there is an emphasis on both the testimony of the law and the mercy seat. Now, the law was given for Israel's good. It revealed to them God's will, especially how they were responsible to love God wholeheartedly and to love their neighbor. But the law also condemns. It demonstrates our inability to keep it. And even if we avoid murder and adultery and theft, we've all coveted in our hearts. We desire what God forbids. So the picture is of God looking down to the law in this box. The law that His people have broken. The commandments that condemn them. The testimony or witness that declares their guilt. But in God's grace, what does He provide? A covering a mercy seat. Now, the English word seat is not referring here to something that you sit on. Seat has a range of meaning that includes the central location of activity. And that's the idea here. This is the place where something very important happens. Mercy seat is one Hebrew word and comes from the verb that means to make atonement. Atone is an English word that combines two English words at one. The idea is that sinners have violated God's law and therefore deserve His judgment. The Lord is against us in His holiness and we are against Him in our sinfulness. So we need to be reconciled. We need at one meant with God. We need to be restored. But how? Well, God's justice must be appeased. His wrath for sin must be satisfied. Atonement in Hebrew literally is a covering. What a wonderful illustration of that word we have here. The law in the ark condemns all violators. But the atonement lid covers the law from view. Instead of seeing the open box of the law, what does God see instead? The place of atonement. There are two nouns that are actually derived from this Hebrew word atonement. One is the word translated mercy seat here. The other word is the Hebrew word kippur, as in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. 
And on that day, only once a year, the high priest would enter within the veil into the most holy place. And he would bring the blood of a sin offering on behalf of the entire nation. He would approach the only piece of furniture in that most holy room, the Ark of the Covenant. And he would sprinkle the blood on the lid of that atonement, uh, the lid of atonement, and he would make a covering for sin that God provided. So get this the blood was placed over the demands of the law. On the basis of substitutionary atonement, God would forgive their sins. He would see the blood and would pass over their guilt. But wait, there's even more. If you were reading the Pentateuch straight through, which is really one five-volume book, when you read about these cherubim at the top of this lid, you would remember, oh, wasn't there something earlier in my reading about cherubim? There is. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And what are they doing? Now, these aren't gold figures. These are real live creatures that God has created. And after Adam and Eve's sin, God expels Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Sin has erected a barrier in fellowship with the Holy Creator. And so Genesis 3.24, God drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The cherubim represent the effects of the fall on mankind. They were made, we were made to commune with God. But sin separates us. And that's really what holiness means. Holiness is being separate, set apart. Before the fall, the Lord would fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden. And now they were completely barred from the garden where they would have fellowship with God. But the golden cherubim figures atop the Ark of the Covenant symbolize a kind of reversing of the curse. Our Holy Creator provides a way to fellowship with Him. There is a way for His justice to be satisfied and for violators of His law to be restored, but only through the blood. Only by means of the atonement He has provided. Now this was certainly good news for the people of Israel. But do you see the picture prophecy revealed more fully in the New Testament for us? We read from Hebrews chapter 8 earlier. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll come back to Exodus 25. But I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 9. And here we have the fulfillment of these picture prophecies about the sanctuary. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and, uh, and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, 
the first part in which was the lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience, concerning only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So these rituals for the tabernacle, even the Holy of Holies, were limited, insufficient, obsolete. They were symbols. They pointed ahead to something else, something more significant. So what are they symbolizing? Verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once, for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This is the gospel, the best news you could ever hear. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be at one with God. You can escape eternal judgment. The judgment that you deserve, but only through the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to a holy God. Now before we conclude, I want you to see a couple more of the furnishings described in Exodus 25. So we'll go back to Exodus 25. This would be a good way to, to stop the sermon uh, on that point. But there's more here. That's so good. And, uh, and so let's just cover a little bit more for a few more minutes. Verse 23. You shall also, God says, 
make a table of acacia wood, two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a hand breadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are on that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So this was set up, this table was set up just outside the veil in the holy place. And only the priests were allowed in this room. In Leviticus 24.8, discussing this table, says every Sabbath they shall set in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And in that previous verse, it even calls this a memorial. So this table with bread was a continual reminder of the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Covenants were usually sealed by offering an animal sacrifice and then following up with a fellowship meal. And that is actually what happens, if you recall, with the establishment of this covenant in the previous chapter. In fact, if you want to look there, verse 7 of chapter 24. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. So the people of Israel, remember, are not allowed on the mountain. They even put barriers just to keep people. They would die because of God's holiness. So they're at the base of the mountain and they commit to the covenant that God has made with them. But Aaron and his sons, along with 70 elders, are given permission to go partway up the mountain and there with God they eat this meal. And then only Moses was able to go to the very top to meet with God and receive the, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments as well as all these instructions concerning the tabernacle. Can you see how the tabernacle is like a mobile Mount Sinai? That's what it was. Only Moses was allowed at the top of the mountain. And only Moses, and later the high priest, was allowed into the Holy of Holies, where God was present. Aaron and his sons, with the elders, were able to go partway up the mountain to eat and drink. And in the tabernacle, only Aaron and his descendants, the priesthood, were allowed to go to the holy place where they would eat this bread from the temple, or, or from, the, uh, from, from the table, this showbread. 
And this was a continual reminder of the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. Jesus would later eat bread with His disciples. He would explain that the broken bread represents His sacrificed body. And then He would command them to have this meal to observe as a memorial to remember the blood of the new covenant. Now let's go to verse 31 to see another furnishing in this same room, the holy place. The Lord says to Moses, You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. Lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shafts, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of lampstand out of one side, three branches of lampstand on the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornament knob and a flower, and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower, and there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece, All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain." So for obvious reasons, there was a need for a lampstand in the holy place. Now, the most holy place had no light. Only God's presence was there. Only a high priest would enter once a year. But the priests were continually keeping the showbread and and this lamp lit, and and they had duties to, to perform in the holy place. And so they needed lamp. Now, the Hebrew word for lampstand is menorah. But this is different from the traditional candelabra that appears in a lot of pictures. Notice that many of the words used in this description are botanical terms. Shaft, blossoms, flower or uh, branches. And there are six branches that shoot off the main shaft. Each of these has three blossoms, and the main shaft has four, with a total of 22 flowering blossoms. So it was supposed to look like a small tree or bush. And an oil lamp, not a candle, was placed on each of the branches. Verse 39 states that it was made out of one talent of pure gold. This weight of gold would only fill about one four-liter milk jug. So it's not a lot. of Pure gold weighs so much. It's not a lot. So probably they would have some form and then take the form away, and it would be like the stem and the branches were probably hollow in the middle, but made because it's made of pure gold. 
The text doesn't give the dimensions of the tree, but verse 40 does state that it should be made according to the pattern which was shown to Moses on the mountain. Now that could mean that while Moses was up on the mountain, the Lord gave him a pattern that isn't described here. I think more likely, the Lord is referring to the pattern that Moses already saw on the mountain. Now can you think of a time when Moses saw a tree with fire burning at that mountain, Mount Sinai? Yes, back in Exodus chapter 3, we have the burning bush. And this was God's first act in delivering His people from Egypt by calling Moses. Others have speculated that the lampstand could picture the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And that's certainly possible, especially since there are other features uh, common between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. Maybe we'll talk about some more of those in future weeks. That would be a, a good study that you could do and see all of those connections. But the clearest connection seems to be the burning bush. You may recall that at the burning bush, the Lord says to Moses, take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And because the Lord was present there, the ground was holy. And the same was true and a reminder for this place in the sanctuary because it was called the holy place because God was present there. In the next chapter, chapter 26, the Lord gives directions concerning the materials that make up the tabernacle itself. There are boards for the walls of the sanctuary. There are four different curtains on the roof. There are many interesting details that we could observe if we had more time. But I, I want to conclude with what God mentions at the beginning of verse 31. Be beginning with verse 31, we'll look at a couple of verses. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon the four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. Notice the purpose of the veil. God says it shall be a divider for you. And you is in plural, referring to people of Israel. You see, the entire tabernacle structure signified God's presence with His people. But there was nothing casual about it. There were a series of barriers. You could only enter the courtyard through one entrance, and only with the sacrifice. And only the priests were allowed in the holy place, and only after a ceremonial washing. But the veil divided everyone from God's holy presence, with the exception of the high priest once a year. All of these curtains, and especially the veil, display the holiness of God. He is set apart. He must be approached on His terms. And as sinners, we have no right 
into His presence. But when we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find the mention of this veil as a barrier to the most holy place in the Jerusalem temple. The Gospel writers tell us that Jesus was taken outside the city to be crucified. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He was completely innocent. In fact, He was sinless. Yet He was punished as if He were guilty. But these writers highlight something that happened at the same time on the other side of Jerusalem. I'll read Mark's account from chapter 15. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed His last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you see the significance? For 1,500 years, there was a barrier between sinful men and a holy God. Blood had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat for atonement. But when Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice, by laying down His life for sin, what happened at that moment? The veil was torn right down the middle. And who tore the veil? God Himself. That five meter high curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. You see, there is nothing that we can do to make a way to God. But you don't have to. Christ has already made a way through His blood. And as a sinner who has violated the law of a holy God, that is the best news you could ever hear. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that You sent Your Son to make a way. We're thankful for the cross of Christ and for the promise that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That through faith in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we can be rescued from judgment. We can be at one with You, our Creator. We know that Christ rose again the third day. And we too look forward to a resurrection of our own bodies to live forever in Your holy presence. Father, until that day, I pray that You would find us faithful. That all that we do would be for Your glory. That we would soberly remember that You are holy and yet with joy understand that our sin has been atoned for. I pray that You would find us faithful to share that good news with others, even as that message will be shared throughout this week to children at our Vacation Bible School. We pray for watering, for planting, for a harvest that would bring glory to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.